This is an ABC podcast. Today's program from the festivals is my conversation with US author Cheryl Strayed. When Cheryl Strayed was 22, her mother died. It was all very quick and unexpected. And Cheryl flailed around in the shockwaves of that for years. And whether she meant to or not, she pulled on the thread of her life and it all completely unravelled. It was five years of self-destruction and a fair bit of self-loathing too. And it was a time when she said she went wild in a very real sense. Then, impulsively, Cheryl Strayed decided to take a long walk. She decided to hike the Pacific Crest Trail, which runs right up the west coast of America. Along the trail, Cheryl lost her boots, her toenails and plenty of skin, but she slowly regained her balance and her sanity. This was the story that became her best-selling memoir called Wild. I should just say to begin with that Cheryl's story is quite intense and there are some moments which may be hard to hear, but there's a lot of love and redemption too. I spoke to Cheryl Strayed at the Sydney Writers' Festival in front of a live audience on the pier at Sydney Harbour. Let's just get the name thing out of the way. Strayed, what a great name. Thank you. S-T-R-A-Y-E-D. It, uh, it could also be the name of your book, couldn't it, in a way? How did you get the name Cheryl Strayed? It's true. Some people, when they're talking about wild, will accidentally call it Strayed, which I think is kind of funny. I, I chose the name for myself. Right before I took my hike in, in 1995, I was 26, and one of the things that I lost along the way, when, when you just spoke of my tremendous grief and the turmoil that followed the years after my mother's death, one of the things I lost was my marriage. I had married very young, really, really too young in retrospect, but to, to a, a great guy, but I just couldn't sustain that that marriage uh, in the face of my grief. And so that came undone. And when I was divorcing, I realized I needed to find a new last name for myself. My father's not in my life and, and hadn't been since I was six. And so I didn't feel like having his name was really important to me. And so I, I knew I needed to invent myself, to reinvent myself and to n- make a new path. So I searched for a word that fit and strayed was it. It's been my name now for 18 years. I like the fact that it's strayed and not stray. Like, you're not a stray, but you had strayed or something. The past tense there seems, seems to be kind of significant. And you, maybe you should be Cheryl Found now. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, strayed still really fits. And I think that sometimes we think of the negative connotations with that word. But really, even, even 18 years ago when I chose the word, I was really responding to to what I see as really a positive narrative, somebody who has taken an alternative path. Here we are at the Sydney Writers' Fest. Just about anyone who becomes a writer and really keeps that faith and sticks with it has taken such a path. You do have to go outside the mainstream and wander into the unknown. And that's what I was doing in so many different ways in my life at that time. And and it's what I've continued to do in different ways um, that have changed with the years. I've got to ask you about your mum to begin with, because your mother is such a presence, whether she's alive or not alive, throughout your book and just about everything you do. Can you paint a a bit of a picture of of your mum as she was? My mom was the kind of mom that you hope to have. She loved me and my siblings with a wild abandon and with a great amount of 
of grace and optimism and magic. We had a very difficult life, really. I grew up in poverty, um, often, you know, always struggling financially. And the first years of my life, my biological father and mother were married um, to each other, and he was uh, an abusive, tyrannical, violent person. And so I really had to see a lot of very painful and ugly things. But my mother always saved me and my siblings from that somehow. Um, first of all, she got us away from our father. But secondly, even when times were hard, she made life good. And so I always grew up, you know, I grew up in all these different ways that you could say, well, that was difficult or that was a challenge, and, and that's true. But I always had an enormous knowledge, you know, th that deep sense that I was loved. And so when I lost that, she was the only person who loved me that way. When I lost that, when she died, I really did feel like the world ended when your father left, how did your mum make ends meet? My mother was a waitress. Uh, she also worked in a factory. And she just had a number of jobs to sort of piece it together. We, we often received what's called food stamps um, in the United States. And, um, but mostly she just had minimum wage jobs. And she had three kids. And we lived in a little apartment, you know, apartment complexes that were occupied mostly by single moms. And it was really tough a lot of the time. This sounds like a really interesting apartment complex, full of single mums and their kids. That's right. And it was funny. So this was in Minnesota, about an hour outside of the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul. And there are all these um, apartment complexes. And they, what I loved is they always had these grand names. Like one of them was called Lake Grace Manor. You know, <laughs> and it was really this dingy apartment building. Another was Barbary Knoll. And, um, and so they had these grand names, but, and, and they were. They were full of single moms and their kids. And this was in the, the 70s. And so there was so much changing in our culture at that time. Divorce, you know, so much divorce and, 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 and really social turmoil. And so I really had, and we were left to our own devices a lot. My mom couldn't always afford a babysitter when she went off to work. And so we were just sort of, we ran wild in like a pack. All over the apartment block. All over the apartment complex, yes. Did you ever hear from your father after he was gone? Yes, a few times uh, throughout my life, my father, ha either I've reached out to him or he's reached out to me, and it's never gone well. I mean, the fact is that my father is a disturbed person, and, and he's had several other children in other marriages. And, you know, without uh, violating other people's privacy, I just will say that his story has never really changed. And every time I've checked in with him to see if it has, um, he's still the same. Why was it that your mother would say to you when friends would come over, OK, you can only ask three questions, <laughs> Cheryl? You know, it's so funny. That's because I was so inquisitive and to the point that adults would be taken aback. So I would be this eight-year-old girl, and I would, you know, if, if, a, if a couple came over, I would pull each of them aside and say, so tell me, why do you really love your wife? <laughs> and I would ask questions. I would ask really wildly inappropriate questions. When I was a teenager, I would ask grown-ups to, to tell me um, about when they lost their virginity and things like this. And it was always because I wanted to know everything. I always wanted to know everything, not, not just the, you know, the self we present publicly, but, but what are our secrets and sorrows? And, and so, yes, my mother had to uh, really restrict my inquisitiveness because it was embarrassing her.
You had a stepfather come into your life and then you all settled on this big property in northern Minnesota. Tell me about this place you all, you all decamped to out of this apartment block from single mums into the countryside. Yes. So when my mom was a single mom, she met this man um, who I call Eddie in the book. He was eight years younger than her. And he was this wonderful person. He was 25 when he met my mom. And he didn't hesitate to fall in love with this woman who had three children under the age of 10. And he really loved us like a father. He was a a carpenter. And um, he had an accident one day, fell off a roof. It was an icy day in Minnesota, and he fell off a roof and broke his back. And it was was really laid up for a year. And at the end of that year, he got a settlement, a legal settlement of $12,000, which was exactly how much money you needed to buy 40 acres of land in a very rural, very poor county called Aiken County, Minnesota, up in the Northland. Um, And so that's what my family did, my mom and stepdad did. They took that $12,000, cashed it, um, and paid for 40 acres of land. Nobody had ever lived on the land. Uh, We were the first people. It was, it's just woods and as, as cold and fierce as you can imagine in the winter, and as hot and mosquito-ridden in the summer as you can imagine. Um, and we went and lived on the land. We, we built a one-room tar paper shack, and my family lived there while we built uh, what became our house. A, a one-room tar paper shack. That's right. In Minnesota, which, I don't know, is meant to be like even colder than the Arctic Circle in, <laughs> in winter just about, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's, it's really one of the coldest places in, in North, North America. America. Yeah. And I do remember, and the only heat we had, and this was all throughout, even when we built the house, we never, to this day, my stepfather lives there and does not have central heat. He, he just has a wood stove, uh, a wood stove that he made himself out of a 55-gallon metal barrel that he welded a hole into and, that was, uh, and put a pipe into it, and that was our stove. And I remember many times waking up in the morning, and my pillow um, would be frozen to the wall behind me um, from the condensation of my breath and just how cold it was. It was uh, 80 degrees below zero with the wind chill um, rather often, and um, it was cold. It's, it's cold. What did you make of all this? Because, I, I don't know, did you have any kind of amenities as well, like running water, electricity? That No. What we had, so, yes, we, we didn't have a indoor plumbing until I was away at college, so no. We did get running water when I was about 15, and uh, we got electricity at the same time because we needed electricity to make the, the pump and the well work. Um, and our house was a very rough, you know, it was built of scrap, you know, material. What would happen is my stepfather, he was a carpenter, so on the job, he would just, whenever there was leftover materials, he would ask the owner if he could have the wood. And so our house is this real hodgepodge of different materials. And it's, it's a big structure. The bottom floor is a barn. Um, where the, we had our horses and our hay and, and goats and chickens and, and my stepfather's w- workshop, and then the top of it is our house. And it's still that way. I mean, I, I, I don't live there anymore, but my stepfather does. And yet, despite all this, you somehow had a successful career as a teenager in high school. 
Well, because I was so humiliated by, really, this way that I lived, uh, that I went off to school. Um, the school was um, 20 miles away in this little town called McGregor, 400 people. And I just pretended that I came from an actually normal family. And I, so I spent lots of time making sure my hair was perfect and you know, trying to seem as if everything was not as it was, like that I hadn't washed my hair, for example, in a bucket that had been heated up you know, on the wood stove. And, and so my, my resistance in some ways was to appear to be normal. So I was a cheerleader. I was the homecoming queen. Um, you know, uh, that was my, my rebellion. Even though the person I really was inside was this, this bookworm and writing. This, I always wanted to be a writer as a young woman, as a kid. I love this, you have this Thoreau-type upbringing and you rebel by becoming a cheerleader <laughs> in high school. <laughs> you, you went to college or university, as we call it in Australia, and, and your mum came along with you. How did, how did that work out? How did, that, how did you manage that? Well, nobody... I didn't come from a house full of culture and books, and I didn't live in the world I live in now. Uh, so, and nobody really talked to me about going to college, but I knew that, that I wanted to. I had always, I was always intellectually curious and wanting an education. And so I applied to one university. I didn't, nobody told me that you're meant to apply to several, you know, because that one might not let you in. And I just applied to one on my own, and when they accepted me, thankfully they did, they sent a letter that said, if you go to school here, one of the benefits is your parents and grandparents can go for free. And my mother said, I've always wanted to go to college. And I knew that to be true. And I thought what, what anyone in their right mind who was 17 um, would think, no way are you going to college with me. <laughs> And with a few curse words thrown in, too, um, which I can't say on the radio, I think. But what happened, and, and so the, the university that I applied to was three hours away in St. Paul, Minnesota. And, but what happened is the truer inner voice said, look, your mom has sacrificed so much for you, and she does deserve this opportunity, and here is one way to get it. And so I said to her, you can come to college with me under one condition, if we should encounter each other on campus, <laughs> you know what's coming, right? <laughs> you cannot acknowledge me or show any recognition whatsoever. <laughs> we, you have to pretend that we have never even met. And so, uh, when, so I, would, I went to school. I lived on campus. She commuted three days a week. Um, she would stay in, in the Twin Cities, go to school. And, and we would sometimes encounter, we would often encounter, encounter each other. And sometimes I would say hello. And sometimes I would, it was like I was the Queen of England, you know. <laughs> she was one of my subjects. And um, so with only the arrogance that one can have with youth, right? So uh, that first year, it was a private school, what's called a private university, and, which means more expensive. And I was paying for my own education. And so I am working three jobs and you know, trying to piece it together. So I, I knew after that first year that I needed to transfer, transfer to a, a less expensive public university. So I did. I, I told my mother I wanted to transfer to the University of Minnesota. And she said, that's fine. I'll transfer too. <laughs> and she did. Luckily, there was more than one campus, however. So I went to the Twin Cities. She went to Duluth, which is in northern Minnesota, up on Lake Superior, one of the Great Lakes. And uh, we went to college in tandem. And it was, we ended up even double, she was a double major in history and women's studies. I was a double major in English and women's studies. And 
It was in our senior year that she became ill. How did you find out that she was ill? Well, my mom, she got what she just thought was a bad cold. And you know, the winters, as I said, are fierce, and oftentimes people get a long, lingering cold. But this was something that wouldn't go away. And so finally, one thing led to another, and they realized that um, my mother had advanced stage lung cancer. How old was she? She was 45, a year older than I am now. And she died seven weeks to the day after her diagnosis. So she just went from being like I am before you right now to being dead in seven weeks. She died on the Monday of our spring break of our senior year of college. Her funeral was on the Friday. And then the next Monday I went back to school because I just had one quarter of classes to finish so that I could get my degree. And my mother had begged me to do so. I, I wanted to quit and she said, you have to do this for both of us. Was she angry that she was being struck down? Struck down's not quite the word, is it? But, but that she was dying. Was she angry about that? You know, it's interesting. I, I don't know that anyone's ever asked me that. If I, or if even thought, you know, she wasn't angry. She was sad. One of the things that was so striking about her death is um, she, she, it happened so quickly. It was like she didn't even have time to truly believe it. My mother didn't take care of anything before she died. It wasn't that she went and got her papers in order and, and got things in order. She was just suddenly so ill, all she could do was die. And I think that maybe I wanted her to be angry. Uh, she was sad. We, we wept together several times because she, didn't, she wanted to live and she also wanted to be alive for her children. You know, my brother and sister and I were all in our late teens and very early 20s. And there was so much, you know, she just, she was moving into a new time of her life. She'd done so, worked so hard to raise these three kids. And just when they were finally about to go into the world, and that she was about to go into the world, here she was about to get her college degree. She wanted to go get her master's degree, wanted to focus on women's history. And then her life was cut short. And she was so grieved that she wouldn't see what happened for the rest of our lives. One of the things that my mom said to me when I expressed to her my sorrow. I said, you'll never get to read my, my books because I was a writer then and I, I knew that I was going to, I mean, that's what my passion was. I wanted to do that in the world. And, she, and my mother said, um, I've already read all of your books already. I'd like you to read from your book about a moment after she died. If you don't mind, it's an extraordinary passage. And in some ways, it's the most uh, jarring part of your memoir, Wild, Cheryl. It's, uh, it's from a moment after your... Well, when your mum was deciding how she would be buried after her death. That's right. When she'd become sick enough that we knew she was really going to die, when we were in the home stretch to hell when we were well past thinking any amount of wheatgrass juice would save her, I'd asked her what she wanted done with her body, cremated or buried, though she only looked at me as if I were speaking Dutch. I want everything that can be donated to be donated, she said after a while. My organs, I mean. Let them have every part they can use. Okay, I said. It was the oddest thing to contemplate, to know that we weren't making impossibly far-off plans, to imagine parts of my mother living on in someone else's body. But then what? I pressed on, practically panting with pain. 
I had to know. It would fall on me. What would you like to do with what's left over? Do you want to be buried or cremated? I don't care, she said. Of course you care, I replied. I really don't care. Do what you think is best. Do whatever's the cheapest. No, I insist. You have to tell me. I want to know what you want done. The idea that I would be the one to decide filled me with panic. Oh, Cheryl, she said, exhausted by me, our eyes meeting in a grief-stricken detente. For every time I wanted to throttle her because she was too optimistic, she wanted to throttle me because I would never, ever relent. Burn me, she said finally. Turn me to ash. And so we did, though the ashes of her body were not what I'd expected. They weren't like ashes from a wood fire, silky and fine as sand. They were like pale pebbles mixed with a gritty gray gravel. Some chunks were so large, I could see clearly that they'd once been bones. The box that the man at the funeral home handed to me was oddly addressed to my mom. I brought it home and set it in the cupboard beneath the curio cabinet where she kept her nicest things. It was June. It sat there until August 18th, her birthday, as did the tombstone we'd made for her, which had arrived the same week as the ashes. It sat in the living room off to the side, a disturbing sight to visitors probably, but a comfort to me. The stone was slate gray, the writing etched in white. It said her name and the dates of her birth and death and the sentence she'd spoken to us again and again as she got sicker and died. I'm with you always. She wanted us to remember that, and I did. It felt like she was with me always, metaphorically at least. In a way, it was literal too. When we'd finally laid down that tombstone and spread her ashes into the dirt, I hadn't spread them all. I'd kept a few of the largest chunks in my hand. I'd stood for a long while, not ready to release them to the earth. I didn't release them. I never, ever would. I put her burnt bones into my mouth and swallowed them whole. After your book was published, what kind of correspondence do you get, did you get about that part of the book? An overwhelming amount of correspondence from people who say, thank you, I know exactly your experience, I did that too, or I wanted to do that too. And what's so striking to me about the final line in that passage I just read, that where I talk about putting those ashes to my mouth and swallowing them, is when I wrote it, I thought, ooh, I've gone too far. I'm going to have to, I'll take that, that line out in the next draft. And I think that what happens to me over and over again as a writer is whenever I write that line or write that scene or write that paragraph, that my first impulse is, it's too much, I have to take it out. It's the thing that everyone talks to me about. And I do think that that's the job of the writer, isn't it? To just go a little bit further than most of us are willing to go in regular life. Had some of your correspondents done something similar? Yes, yes. It strikes me as an act of magic in the oldest sense of the word, in this kind of absolutely, completely emotionally convulsive moment, you do something that is so pregnant with magic and ritual that is beyond a million miles beyond reason and rationality. That's right. I was acting on instinct in that moment. 
I didn't even know I was going to do it until I did it. I knew that I couldn't let my mother go in the material sense. And, and in some ways that was, you know, keeping her with me forever. And I, I think so many of the things, so many of the moments in Wild, uh, when I, the, there's a scene where the f- a fox walks up to me and we look at each other and the fox walks off and I yell after it, mom, mom, mom. I didn't know um, what I was doing and I still don't know what I was doing. So many people have said to me, well, do you think that your mom was the fox? Or do you think the fox was God? Or do you think, and the answer is, I don't know. Because you weren't thinking. I wasn't thinking, I was feeling. And also that there is, there is a realm of life that, that is the inexplicable. That is the inexplicable. And so I tried to put those things all on the page as honestly as I could. And that's what it means to be wild. That's not really about the wilderness. It's that moment. That's when you're wild, isn't it? Yes. And, and that's, what, that's why I called the book Wild. I mean, obviously, it refers to the wilderness and to the wild places I, I literally went on my hike. And so much of the book is about that, the fun adventure aspect of the book. But I think that the more important and meaningful part of the book is that the wild within us and the savage self that I became in touch with through my grief and also through the difficulty of that hike. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler on ABC Radio. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. After your mum died, it was such a wrenching thing for you. How did that grief then affect your marriage? Because you'd married young, you were married to this very nice guy. How how did that impact on the marriage? I think that when my mom died, everything false had to fall away. And and it isn't to say I didn't love my my ex-husband, I did. But before she died, I knew, in fact, before I even got married, I knew that I was getting married too young that I was you know, not yet ready for such a commitment. But once my mother died, I couldn't fake anything. And I also couldn't lean into the, the healthy aspects of my life. We did have a great relationship. And yet I also just felt like, okay, I can't sustain anything in this soil. Everything has to die so that I can figure out again who I am. And so in so many ways, I just set about destroying that relationship. You didn't want him anymore, did you? That was it. Yeah. But you then had this kind of voracious appetite for other men suddenly. Yeah, I think like a lot... I've always had a voracious appetite for men. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I mean, sort of kidding. <laughs> not, not really kidding. Um, but uh, the, I think like a lot of young women, you know, I, I had really gotten so much assurance and power from being sexually attractive to men. And so, I mean, it wasn't a very original way, I guess, to, to uh, both simultaneously self-destruct and also get affirmation. And so I pretty quickly just, yeah, I, I got involved with other men. A week after your mother died, you were sitting in a cafe and you were watching a man in that cafe. Tell me what happened. I wasn't with my mom when she died, and that was really painful for me. But I arrived at the hospital about an hour after her death and she was 
lying in the bed that she died. And, and I walked in and immediately fell to my knees. And so I had these big garish bruises on both of my knees. And I was sitting in this cafe and I was watching this man and he was watching me back. I was wearing a short skirt and boots and these bruises were visible. And he walked up to me, he walked up to the table and he said that he was attracted, he was drawn to me because of them. And he asked me if I was mature. And I said yes, even though I didn't know what that meant. He was older than me. I was 22. He was in his 30s, probably. And in very short order, he just asked me to leave the cafe with him, and I did. And we went around the side of the building, and he, and he kissed me, um, but he bit me. And I pushed him away because he made my, you know, I mean, he actually made me bleed. At the lip? Yeah, on my lip. And, and, and he said, you're not mature. And he flung me away from him and left. And I think that in so many strange ways that, was, that opened a door for me and I stepped through it into a, more, a darker and more dangerous world when it came to my body and sex. There's a line in the movie Train Spotting you know, about um, heroin where uh, the main character says you know, there's a reason why people take heroin. It's because it makes you feel fantastic. And no one ever talks about that because people are worried that knowledge of that will get out. And, uh, and of course, the truth of what heroin is and what it does to you is, is something else. But that's the reason. And for a while, you did, you did take heroin for a while. Mm-hmm. Did it give you that kind of respite from yourself or what? What, did, what were you getting from heroin? Absolutely, it did. I think that that is such a, a thing that people don't really talk about when they talk about drugs. Um, really what I was seeking was a cure for my pain. And I, that's what I was seeking by hiking the PCT too. It was just, it happened to be a good choice instead of a bad one. And when I first used heroin, you know, I said earlier that the world without my mother, it felt like a world I couldn't live in. It was a world I couldn't bear. And heroin was actually the first thing that worked. It was the first thing that made the world without my mom bearable. And it felt good. And it also felt that anything that was true that hurt didn't hurt that bad anymore. And I know that that sounds ridiculous because I do also want to say that it's the absolute worst thing I've ever done. So it, it brought me to the low point. It, it made me, it, it, what it did is it, it, it stripped me of my, my, of my dignity and my sense of myself as a good person who had something to offer the world. When I was using heroin, I remember walking down the street and you know people would be having dinner and if their curtains were open I could see them having dinner parties or dinner with their family and I remember very distinctly thinking I used to be that kind of person I used to be the kind of person who could sit and have a lovely dinner with people who love me and what was so strange about that is I wasn't even a heroin addict you know I was just dabbling dangerously and I wasn't even that far into it and already just you know a month into it I lost my sense of myself how did you stop it? How did you stop taking heroin? I, so I, I was using heroin in Portland, Oregon, where I live now. And I had I'd been living with my husband in Minnesota, Minneapolis. And I'd gone to Portland, Oregon to, on an extended sort of vacation to visit a friend to, to flee the trouble of my life in Minnesota. And, and I got involved with this man who got, who, through him, I got involved with heroin. And my, my, hus- my ex-husband, who was still my husband at the time, caught wind of this that I was doing this. And he drove 1,500 miles to Portland and found me and said, you have to stop this. You have to come back with me, please. And I did. There was this sense of like, I didn't know what to do. 
I didn't know whether to go with him or not. But I thought, okay, I'm gonna, here's this one person who really does love me. I'm going to trust him. So I got in the car and I went back to Minnesota. And that really saved me in so many ways. And that didn't mean that I went back to Minnesota and everything was rosy. And, and, I, and, and it also didn't mean that I never used heroin again. But I got away from the person who I was using heroin with, the, 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 the whole community of drug use that I'd gotten involved with. It was also the mid-90s. It was 1994 in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. And I can't begin to tell you how impossibly cool it felt to me to be doing this. This was Nirvana. It was the height of the grunge movement. Everyone like me, all of these college-educated artsy types were, you know, experimenting with, with drugs, especially heroin. I saw that happen in Australia too, in places like St Kilda in Melbourne and in Sydney. That period, there's something happened, kind of the idea of heroin entered into the culture then. Yeah. So how did the Pacific Crest Trail then enter your orbit? Well, I was, I was back in Minnesota, and now this was the dark ages for my, for my life. You know, I, I, left, I, was, I, I left heroin behind, but I was still really hungering for it. I felt like I had, had you know, ruined my life. Uh, my marriage was over, and we were in the midst of getting divorced. And I realized I was pregnant um, by the, the heroin addict boyfriend. And I didn't, I knew that, that just, I, I had this sort of, I guess, slow awakening where I just realized, you know, maybe all this time that I'd been raging against my sorrow and self-destructing, I had been trying to honor my mother. Because what better honor, right, than to say, I love you so much I can't go on without you. And I realized that that was such so wrong. I'm a mother now. I have two kids, a daughter who's seven, a son who's nine. And I know that the greatest honor for me would be that they thrive no matter what happens to me or their father. And so I came to, to understand this and I realized I had failed to become the woman that my mother raised me to be, the woman that I, you know, that, that girl who had been asking all those questions and who'd applied to college that, and, and gone and, you know, all of those things. I'd failed that person. And I couldn't bear it. I couldn't bear to live my life that way. And so I knew I had to find a way out of it and that the only person who was going to get me out of it was me. And so I decided to look for something to do. And I wasn't really sure what that would be. It was just more like a feeling. And I happened to be standing in line at an outdoor store in, just outside of Minneapolis. Um, there had been a blizzard in Minnesota and I needed to go buy a shovel to dig my truck out. And as I was standing in line waiting to pay for it, um, I saw a guidebook along the ca by the ca cashier, and it was called The Pacific Crest Trail, Volume 1, California. And I'd never heard of the PCT before. I'd never heard of anything like it. It's a national scenic trail. And I read the back of the book, and it said it was this trail that went from the Mexican border to Canada through California, Oregon, and Washington, up the crest of the Sierra Nevada mountain range and the Cascade Range. And something inside of me bloomed, and I thought, okay, I'm not anything great or grand or strong or magnificent, but maybe if I attach myself to this thing that is, maybe in some ways I can find some little piece of myself again. Redemption comes from the purchase of a shovel. I love it. <laughs> well, that's the beauty of life. You know, when you write about your life, what you find is you actually have to tone down the metaphors that the, the, the life hands you. You know, uh, here I had to dig my truck out. Well, I really needed to dig myself out. <laughs> Indeed. 
As you were preparing for it, you were wearing your mother's wedding ring. That's right. What happened to it? Um, I was traveling. So I had a truck that I called Myrtle. It was a 1979 Chevy Love pickup truck and a little bed in the back. And I drove west to go hike the PCT. And I was sleeping in the back along the way, camping in the back of my truck. And I stopped in Wyoming in the Bighorn Mountains. And I slept near this, the, the Tongue River. And I woke up in the morning and I realized that I wanted to sort of perform some kind of ritual to mark this new passage in my life. So I went into the, I took off all my clothes. It was freezing cold. I submerged myself in this icy water three times, like a baptism. And I got out of the, the river and I looked down at my hand and I realized that my mother's wedding ring was gone, that I'd lost it in the river. And I really, I went back into, I mean, I wanted to go and search for it, but how do you find a ring in a river? When you lose a ring in a river, you really lost it. It's really gone. And I think that that was one of the moments, one of the, the, few, the several moments that I, that I understood that, that, um, that you know, that was, that was the story with my mom, too, that she was gone. And that I had to just find a way to accept it and to, and to move on. Do you think that ring kind of meant you were married to your mother in a funny sort of way? Yeah. You know, what I thought really was, yeah, that I was bound to my mom. I think we are bound to the people we love. And, and, I, and I think that that's a positive thing. But I think when somebody dies who we love, we have no choice but to, to unbind ourselves to some extent from them. And so, yes, it was, it was, uh, I, was, I had just divorced my husband. I had just, chose, I had just been, become Cheryl Strait officially maybe a couple weeks before. And, and yes, I was also releasing myself from my mother. So you, you get this backpack ready, and you, you, you pack things in it like a saw. I love that for a start. <laughs> it's way too... Way too overpacked and over, overcrowded. What happened when you tried to actually get it on your back, Cheryl? I couldn't lift it up. <laughs> like, actually, I, I'm not, I mean, I, I, I could not lift my pack, which, which ends up being rather contrary to the notion that I'm going to carry it 1,100 miles. Um, so I found myself in this motel room in the little town of Mojave, California, looking at that, saying, okay, I have... This pack I cannot lift, which, which was loaded down with all of the things you say and more. And also 24 and a half pounds of water, because I was beginning my walk in the Mojave Desert, where turns out there's very little water. And um, I really just could not lift the pack. So how did you get it on your back? Well, I had to d- sort of do this thing where I just got down on my rump and strapped it on, and then rocked and rocked <laughs> and rocked back and forth until I hurled myself forward onto my hands and knees. And then I would do a kind of, a, a sort of dance and a deadlift. Um, but were you laughing your ass off while you were doing this, by the way? <laughs> well, what's funny, that scene in Wild, so many people have said, oh my gosh, you know, they, I was just rolling on the floor laughing. Um, but it, a lot of the funniest things in literature end up being not very funny in actual life. <laughs> <laughs> so then you spend the first eight days going through this desert as you head head north and without speaking to another soul what goes through your mind when you're truly on your own without distractions other than the need to actually keep going and survive most of them can't be said on radio (laughs) (laughs) most of the things that were going through my mind but really for the first eight days of my hike not not only did I not speak to another human being I didn't see another human being I was really in a very remote place and alone truly alone 
I went out there knowing that I was, it was going to be a solitary hike, but it was more solitary than I expected it to be. And what I was thinking is that I was into, that I'd, that I'd really, uh, you know, that this was harder than I thought it would be. And harder physically. That pack was so heavy that everywhere it made contact with my body, it, it blistered and rubbed my skin away. And also just the sheer strength it took to keep walking beneath that pack. And not just walking along a nice little paved flat trail. We're talking about going up and down mountains. Up and down, up and down. And each of those mountains being incredibly punishing in all kinds of weather, you know. And, and I, so I quickly learned that just it was going to be hard. And it wasn't going to be fun a lot of the times. But what would always happen is even in those early days that were so hard, and my feet were just killing me, everything was killing me, um, that it was so beautiful. It was so unbelievably magnificent that I couldn't help but feel so lucky to be there and, that, and that, uh, that I was in the right place. And here I'd come off this part of my life that I was always crying and feeling depressed. And, and suddenly I didn't even think about those things. I was thinking, where is the next water source? How am I going to get up this mountain? Look at this amazing sunset. Is a mountain lion going to eat me? Etc. <laughs> <laughs> there were some pretty key uh, gear failures as well. Your stove didn't work. And then well, I boots. put the wrong kind of gas in it. So that, that yeah. It was my fault, not the stoves. <laughs> I love the fact you were pet taking a stove with you in the first place. And, and then your boots. What happened to your boots, Cheryl? Well, you know, my boots, about six weeks into my hike, one of my boots fell over the side of the mountain. Out of reach, really far. I mean, impo- you know, literally over the side of a cliff. And so there I was. I mean, that's the reason there's that one boot on the cover. Um, because for that moment, that time I had one boot, um, it was only a brief time that I had one boot because I realized pretty immediately that one boot is useless. And so what else to do but to throw it over the edge to join its mate? <laughs> so what did you do to substitute? I made boots out of duct tape. And how did that go? <laughs> <laughs> I should have patented my duct tape boots. Actually, so I had these little sport sandals, and I took the duct tape and sort of wrapped the sandals in duct tape. And I really, um, you know, frankly, at that point, my boots had been killing me. I, I lost six toenails in the course of my hike, and I always had foot trouble all along the way. And so wearing those, uh, those duct tape sandal boots weren't, weren't any worse than, than anything else, though I will say they started falling apart by the time... I reached my next stop. You met a lot of people on the way. There were you know, hippies, trail angels, Christian boy scouts. What, what were people like when you encountered them on the trail? You must have been a bit fearful. There you are alone, running into individuals or small groups of people. How were they on the trail? Wonderful. It, it was, there wasn't a sense of fear on the trail when I ran into people. I did, at one point, have a negative experience with, with two men towards the end of my trip. But everyone else I met on the trail there was just this amazing sense of kindness and kinship and generosity. If you needed something, they were going to give it to you. If they needed something, I was going to hand it over. And, and I think it was just that, you know, as I said, I, I went the first eight days without seeing another person. That was the longest stretch, but it was very normal for me to go two or three days without seeing people. And so when you did come upon them, you were so happy to be talking to somebody who was essentially suffering the same things you were. And what was interesting, most of the people I met um, were uh, men who were hiking you know, in partner, as partners or sometimes a man and a woman team. And you know, they were also just so excited 
um, to talk to someone who wasn't the person they were hiking with. <laughs> because so many of those pairs, you know, they just loathed each other, you know, by the, by the end. <laughs> and how about you? You were hiking with yourself. Were you keen to get away from the person you were hiking with as That's well? That's right. I, I was really keen to get away from that person, that voice in my head that was often, you know, doing things like playing jingles from, you know, absurd commercials and ads I'd heard throughout my life and such. So it was nice to have conversation. Were you sick of yourself? I think that I wasn't so much sick of myself as going to a deeper place within myself. There were things I ended up thinking about that would just rise. You know, when you have that much solitary and silence, there are parts of your life that you don't even know that you remember that one day emerge. One example, or that you're not even aware, you know, lives within you. One example is that the day of my mother's 50th birthday, I woke up and I just felt enraged with her, this woman who I loved so much. And I spent the day really going through in my head all the things she'd done wrong as a mother and just feeling, you know, it's sort of going deep into that anger. And so that's, that's the sort of thing that would arise. It wasn't so much the old self repeating itself over and over, but rather going very deep. You had a kind of a long, scary night one night uh, where you were completely terrified. Tell me about that night and how you overcame that fear. You know, all of those things, not just that night, but I think throughout the trail and before I went on the trail, what I had to do was say to myself, I will not be afraid, which is, of course, contrary to what I actually felt at times. You say it out loud? I would say it out loud or or to myself in my head. And, And it was the thing that allowed me to take the hike. You know, I, I think that we all have received that message, but, but probably especially women, that, you know, we're not supposed to go anywhere alone, we're not, especially into the wild, um, that that's foolhardy and, you know, you're asking for it and all of those things. And I just decided early on that, that, I, that I would need to just tell myself, you're not afraid, you are not afraid. And, you know, and even, you know, those times when I faltered, I would say, you're okay, and you're the strongest person here. And, of course, that only meant that I was the only person here. <laughs> but, you know, I just, I had to, to create a new story for myself. Where did the hike finish? I finished my hike, and here, this is under the category, again, of, you know, real life hands you such such beauty that if you made it up in fiction, everyone, your writer's group would say, no, 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 you can't have this. Um, the bridge, I, I finished at the Columbia River, which forms the border of, uh, between Oregon and Washington, the states of Oregon and Washington. And there's a bridge that spans the river in this place that the PCT crosses it. And it's called the Bridge of the Gods. And it's a beautiful bridge. And it, here it is, the Bridge of the Gods. That was my destination. And here I was on this this trek of, 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 you know, really that was ultimately a spiritual journey. Not, not spiritual in any kind of Christian or traditional sense, but spiritual nonetheless. And, and uh, so for me to end there just felt rather perfect. What did the trail do to your body at the end of it? You mentioned six lost toenails. What else? Well, I lost a lot of weight. It's, if anyone wants to slim down, just put on an 80-pound pack and start walking. Um, I could write like a PCT diet book. It entails um, a lot of suffering. Um, but I lost weight. I got really strong. I was incredibly calloused in like, where my hip belt 
uh, wrapped around me and cinched, that whole, all of that flesh became what I call um, in the book, like tree bark plucked dead chicken um, is, the, <laughs> is the sort of, not very attractive, I know, but um, it just incredibly callous because I was so, you know, finally just chafed and my skin just, you know, built itself up. Um, and for years, whenever I would get a massage, um, the, the masseuse would say, your feet are so strong. I didn't know that feet could be strong, um, but apparently I had strong feet. And um, yeah, my body changed in those ways. I, and, and mostly, I, I felt really altered inside. You met your husband at the end of the trail too. How did that happen? Nine days after I finished my hike, I met, yes, my husband. I was always short of money. And, and uh, I, when I finished my hike, I had 20 cents left. And uh, I really had 20 cents left in the whole world. No, no credit cards, nobody to call. Um, but I had a friend who lived in Portland, Oregon, which is about 45 minutes from where I finished the hike. And she said, you can come stay with me until you get a job. And so I got there, and I had a yard sale. And... Um, I sold something to the man who that night uh, invited me to dinner, and he introduced me to his friend Brian, who's now my husband. So it was a magic yard sale through which I met my husband. What do you want to tell your 26-year-old self now that you've written the book, that young woman who went on that hike? That it'll be okay, and that you did the right thing. You know, I, I think that so much of my 20s, there was always this sense that things wouldn't be okay. There's a, there's a real melodrama to youth, and age humbles you and makes you realize that, you know, that we all suffer and we can all get through it, and that life isn't perfect, but it can be beautiful nonetheless. What a beautiful story, too. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank the amazing Cheryl Strade. Thank you. Podcast, broadcast, and online. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Today's conversation with Cheryl Strayed was recorded at the 2014 Sydney Writers' Festival. Cheryl's memoir is called Wild, and of course it was later made into a film with Reese Witherspoon. You might be interested to know that Cheryl Strayed wrote an advice column and co-hosted a podcast for many years, both were called Dear Sugar. Her latest podcast for the New York Times is Sugar Calling. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.